and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. A home should be a sanctuary, but for many people in Britain, it's not that at all. It's a place you could be kicked out of at any time because your landlord decides to get another tenant or sell up. Where you need the damp patch fixing, but the letting agent won't act on it. Where your kids have to share a bed end-to-end because there's no space for another one. Ashi Mohammed is now a barrister specialising in housing and the author of A Home of One's Own. He lives in a place in Wembley, but it hasn't always been like that for him. Welcome to the bunker, Hashi. Thank you very much for having me, Rose. Tell us about the first place or places you lived, because you moved about once a year as a child, didn't you? Oh, gosh. When we first arrived in 1993 as an unaccompanied child refugee, we were living, I think it was about 18 of us in a three-bedroom house in North Wembley, not far from where I am speaking to you today. And I calculated that we probably moved around eight times, eight to 10 times in four years. And so it wasn't exactly the most stable beginnings. And you're absolutely right. Head to toe on the beds and cramped conditions never really stayed in the house. You always went out to get a bit of life. And yeah, that was the sort of first few years of, of my time in, in, in London. How did you feel when you, as you've not done now, when you finally moved into your own place, when you shut the door behind you in the house that you actually owned? You know, it's a real interesting sort of change of psyche and mindset because when we were growing up in such precarious situations from one squalor council accommodation to the next, it it wasn't really clear to me back then for sure as to what I was missing out on. It wasn't clear to me what I was missing out on when I started renting because you're renting and every year you dread the email from the solicitors or the estate agents or, or, or from the landlord to either say you, are, you have to move out because there's a court order saying that he has to sell up the place or the rent is going up by 10% or 20%. And it was only really you know, seven years ago now that I finally kind of got a different level of security and a different sensation because once you understand that your home is your home and nobody can kick you out and unless you obviously don't pay your mortgage but you you realize actually it's your own and you can do with it what you want and when you come home you'll feel safe and secure and happy and genuinely kind of with a great sense of security and having recently become a father I've become even more appreciative of that so you became a barrister and now you specialise in housing and planning issues. What made you do that? Did you gravitate towards it because you felt profoundly about the whole issue? I think it was that, but also a bit of an accident. When I started training as a, as a barrister, in the first year of training, you are exposed to a number of areas of law. And planning an environment happened to be one of four areas of law. But I was instantly struck by it because it was the area of law, I have to say, when I first went in, actually, I was very clear that I didn't want to do any criminal law or, or family law, partly because it was just depressing to deal with sort of the kind of difficulties of society playing out in our courtrooms. And I just felt like I couldn't deal with that day in, day out. And then there was also the money, the legal aid cuts and all the rest of it. I thought to myself, I grew up in very, you know, precarious, financially precarious situation in life. I don't want that to kind of prolong itself beyond a certain age, particularly if I'm now a professional. And then so when I was exposed to the planning and environment law area, it also became very clear to me that I thought, oh gosh, 
you know, this is an area of law that is interested in how things could be better in the future rather than trying to unravel what's gone bad in the past. Because if you think about every other piece of litigation, you're arguing about, you know, who stabbed who and who wants to divorce whom or who who has contractually kind of failed to meet their obligations. And so you're trying to unravel the past. Whereas planning is really genuinely about exciting ideas about what could happen in the future. New houses, new towns, new railways, new airports, new... You feel like you're contributing to a sense of change and purpose and beauty in the future. And that was quite attractive to me when I first started practicing in in planning and housing in particular. And yet the irony is, of course, that in Britain, we have so much difficulty building and putting these schemes through. I mean, The Economist a couple of weeks ago ran a whole front cover on how planning laws or the uh, bureaucracy behind them as it's always, were, the, were such a big break on development in this country. So is it frustrating at the same time to see how things are held up and delayed? Absolutely. But I have a slightly different take on it. I mean, I did read a lot of that material from, from The Economist. But I think it's easy for one to understand the planning system as being the place where all good ideas go to die and the place that is holding up all sorts of progress, including housing and and much needed infrastructure. But the reality is slightly more boring and slightly more complicated in that our planning system is our product of the political wishes and the understanding of our politics about what we need as a society. In other words, All of our planning laws, planning systems, and the ways in which we are trying to see how we plan for our future is politically driven. So what tends to happen is that when decision-making is playing out through our political system, what is actually playing out is local politics through the planning system. So you have, as the outgoing chief inspector and and of, of the planning inspectorate, she said, our planning system is this sort of convoluted, technocratic, technical, detailed numbers and sort of highly specialized field that we then push through a sieve of politics, if you can imagine the metaphor, a sieve of politics. And what comes out at the end is ghastly. And it's the reason why we are struggling the way that we're struggling. So as a planning lawyer, I am no doubt profiting disgustingly from this inertia, inaction, and delay, and all that. But that's not really my fault. That's that's the fault of a system that is completely and utterly political. And for as long as that remains the case, we will not make the kind of progress that we deserve to make as a society. When you say it's political, how does that play out? Because Often people think of it as very much nimbyism and individuals who don't want change, who are very happy as they are, who don't want their neighborhood to alter and have more traffic or for their views to be spoiled. How do they manage to make their voices heard and so powerful in the current system? Yes, the two are entirely linked. If you think about local authority areas, whether it's in Brent, whether it's in Kent, whether it's in Nottinghamshire or in Somerset, when you think about local politics, you're dealing with a local authority that might have 
let's say, 20 to 30 local elected councillors. Those councillors have to have what's called a local plan that plans for that particular area where they are for the next 25, 30 years. Now, that local plan has to go through a very rigorous independent examination, which then determines how many houses you're going to need, how you prepare for your schools, how you prepare for your roads, how you prepare for your local GP practice, and the kind of, you know, how many, how many trees you, you, you end up planting, et cetera, et cetera. When that kind of technocratic independent examination takes place, it comes out with a, a result, which is the local plan. The local plan then says, you, let's take, for example, Essex, you need to build X amount of houses over the next 10 years or in the next five years. Now, that has to be democratically voted for, which then means that those local people, the so-called NIMBYs, almost always of a particular age, I don't need to tell you whether they're 18 or 80, I think you can guess which, which age bracket they fall into, and they will come forward and they will tell their local councillors, listen, we do not want these houses here, so you better vote down this local plan or you better vote down this, this planning permission. So that local councillor will then have a coalition of the unwilling, as I call it. And usually, by the way, this coalition of the unwilling is made up of a hodgepodge of people that don't necessarily vote along party lines or conservative or labor or whatever, but actually a kind of an alliance of not in my backyard kind of thing. And then those people will say, okay, well, I want to be elected. And these are the only people voting. And they don't want this thing. So I don't want this thing. And that's what happens up and down the country. And I'm literally turning up planning inquiry after planning inquiry after planning inquiry with applications that have been given the green light by the council's officers. In other words, the civil servants within the council have said this scheme should go ahead, but it gets voted down by councillors. And we're at an appeal, a very expensive appeal because of this decision. And so that's how the nimbyism, the politics, and our planning system interact on a daily basis to essentially stifle, stifle, you know, in the most horrible way, any sort of progress. So what can we do to break through this? Because doesn't it mean in this case, less local democracy, which is never what people say that they want? Very good point. What is really striking for me, and, and this is the, the, the square that we need to circle, in order for us to give legitimacy to our planning system, there has to be a level of political accountability. So there is that aspect of understanding that in order for our local plans and how we provide for our local communities to actually work, it is absolutely critical that there is political accountability. But what do we then do if the same political accountability relies and has a self-interest in not doing anything. Well, then it seems to me that our politics is then broken and our political system and our democratic systems are essentially stopping us from, from doing anything. So is the answer that then we need to move to a technocratic dictatorship-like system where everything has to be voted by a committee? Well, no. But do we then need grown-up politicians who need to make the decisions on behalf of the nation rather than their own, their own specific short-term electoral outcomes? Yes. And that's why I've been, you know, in the book, I talk about 
the fact that we need the, the kind of politicians that are willing to go up there and make the difficult decisions on behalf of and in the interest in the vast majority of people, most of whom will not have voted for them, rather than just watching behind them to think what so-and-so who always turns up because they've got plenty of time on their hands because they retired 10 years ago and they bought their houses for 2,500 and the house is now worth about you know, a million pound, that they turn up and they tell you to vote it down, that you look at those people and think, this is not in society's interest, even if it's in your short-term interest. That's what we need. And I, and I don't know whether we have that crop of politicians to be able to do that. And the final thing I'll say to you on that is, we have annual housing targets going back to Winston Churchill, 1950, where he talked about building 300,000 houses a year to meet our need. We still have that same figure of 300,000 a year, which is woefully inadequate anyway. Another conservative leader having her first party conference is now calling the same 300,000 number Stalinist. Make of that what you will. Well, this is also the conservative leader who at the weekend was uh, was briefing that communities would be encouraged to accept fracking with the promise of more schools and more GPs. Never mind the fact that, you know, obviously we ought to have schools and GPs whether or not we allow fracking in the neighbourhood. But that aside, I mean, is is can bribery, put simply, play a part in this? Can there be a quid pro quo where people feel, yes, I'm getting this in exchange, and I, I can see what the advantages to me personally are, as well as to the, advantage, the advantages, as you say, to wider society and to intergenerational fairness? Yes, no, I completely, I saw that. And actually, there was even something worse than that when we saw the planning minister, Clark, say that it's really important that we get house building done. But actually, we need to say to the communities that there has to be something in it for them. And that is the same example in the fracking context that you're talking about and in the housing context in which the housing minister was talking about. But I find this profoundly disturbing because it is profoundly disturbing to keep on insisting that something has to be in it for the community. Why? How about consent based on inclusivity and sustainability, and in the case of fracking, safety, rather than this narrow selfishness and the sort of proverbial bribery that needs to take place. Why should that be the way forward? Why should you be bribed to accept the development that's needed in that particular area? Because your child is not going to get on the property ladder at this current rate. Their grandchild was certainly not, but yet you don't want it in your backyard, but you do what you accept there's a housing crisis, but just don't build anything near me. It's just mad. I suppose what these people would say is that they feel that their housing wealth is all that they have in the context of a declining welfare state and feeling, for example, that they can't be sure they will get an operation that they need on the NHS. So they might have to take out equity on their home to pay for it to be done privately. They feel this is the only real security they have. Is there a way to address that without just a a massive fall in housing prices? Well, two two immediate responses to that. The first is that those people will not say that to your face. They are thinking it. You're absolutely right. Exactly as you've characterized it is what I say in the book, but they never actually are honest about it because if they turned around and they were honest about it and say, look, this is all I've got and this is why I don't want these houses anywhere near me, I can engage with that. 
but instead they turn up and they complain about really random and nonsensical things, which then delays uh, an otherwise sustainable development from coming forward. But to, uh, to address it head on, what those people don't understand is that if you have more housing in a particular area, it is actually shown scientifically that it will more likely to add to your property prices going up than not. And that's what they don't understand. At the moment, we are in a situation where we are basically 25, 30 years out from ever catching up with the housing need that currently exists. And so what they don't understand is if they allow for a particular scheme to take place, for young families to move in, for then some businesses to come to the area, to rejuvenate that area, their house prices will probably go up in about 20% in five years. They don't see that. Instead, they see it as a threat because they think if you, in, if you introduce more housing, that must mean that my property price is going to go down and therefore my equity is going to be at stake and therefore anything that I might need for that operation is at stake. Not at all. In fact, the opposite is the case. The more that is brought to your area in a sustainable way, of course, because that's what the planning system offers, the more chance that your property prices is going to go up. And that's what people don't understand. And the final thing I'll say to you on that is it's really interesting because for me, the really most tragic thing about the way we currently understand housing is the way in which it's moved from the place where you lay your head to this being some sort of a pension fund. And that is a perverse, perverse result of what happened with the way in which people lost confidence in their pensions. When you look back to the sort of late 80s, early 90s, the death of, the, of Maxwell, who, 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 who ended up destroying a bunch of people who worked in Daily Mirror's pensions. And then, of course, you had the raid on the pensions by Gordon Brown you know, in the early Labour government. A lot of people at that point realized, gosh, I'm putting away my money in the pension, but actually I'm not even guaranteed a decent outcome at the end of it. And that's that shift of mindset that we then saw that led to where we are now, where people are looking at their properties as being the number one place to actually invest, which I think is also a profoundly disturbing kind of development over the last 20 years. Does that mean that we should also make it more difficult for people to own multiple properties? I'm not talking about, you know, housing associations or perhaps big landlords, but more those people who own, perhaps own a couple of buy-to-lets and are now thinking yes. of sticking them on Airbnb because they can make more money out of it, even though it reduces the housing supply for ordinary people. Do we need to have major disincentives to owning that extra property? Absolutely. I'd go further. I'd say that it is profoundly immoral if you are somebody who ends up buying two or three properties all at once because you turned it into a business. Because especially in a situation where we're in right now, where so many people can barely buy their first house, let alone their third or fourth buy-to-let mortgage. So some landlords will say to you, well, you know, I'm a good landlord. I'm providing a bunch of affordable houses or a bunch of properties that are well kept into the market. So why are you trying to vilify me? I'm not trying to vilify anyone. All I'm saying is that it cannot be right that there are some people in our society who are able to afford, because of the various incentives that we had on the buy-to-let, which, is, by the way, has been 
really scaled back. But a bunch of incentives that we had at a certain point, which then allowed for so many of these buy-to-let mortgages to pop up everywhere, that is profoundly problematic for a number of people. So I think there's, an, there's a moral question to be asked. But I'd go even further. I'd be really working extremely hard to curtail foreign investment in the UK. If you go to places like New Zealand, Vancouver, Singapore, these places really strongly control who can own property and homes in their countries. I'm sorry, but when there are people starving and living, you know, in crowded conditions in Hackney and and so many places across the country, it cannot be right and it cannot be fair that a Saudi prince or a Jordanian king or a despot in Kenya can buy up prime real estate in London, which then just adds to this huge inflation and this huge kind of expense that then throws people out that have to live here day to day, people like me and you. So for me, I would go even one step further about just multiple ownership. I'd be trying to curtail that. I'd be curtailing foreign investments. I'd be curtailing people who buy properties and leave them empty in Switzerland. If you leave your property empty for after a certain time, you're hit with the double of the equivalent of, 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 of the council tax. Yes, please, more of that. You know, so there's plenty of things I could tell you that we need to do that, you know, and it's not stuff that I'm making up. It's stuff that's happening right now in New Zealand, Canada, Switzerland and Singapore. It's even happening in Wales, isn't it? They're cracking down. Oh, yes. And Cornwall. It's happening in Cornwall in, in, in St. Ives. They're really cracking down on the holiday homes. Yes, please. Ashi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. A Home of One's Own is published by Profile Books. It's a great short read, less than three quid as an ebook. I really recommend it. We know that times are tough, as we've just been saying, and uncertain for a lot of people at the moment. The bunker is free, but you can back us on Patreon. Just choose the amount you want to donate and help keep us making podcasts. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomaszewicz. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>